Good morning, friends. We're going to continue in our series in the book of James, looking at a few verses as James has been unpacking the trials that we've been going through and how we are to think about them. I want to tell you this story. I hadn't been married 24 hours when my wife and I were on a plane headed to our honeymoon when the captain came on the loudspeaker and said, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to experience some significant turbulence. My new bride, Kristen, gripped my hand and told me, I really don't like turbulence. And that was news to me. I had no previous knowledge or even thinking that she would have any aversion to flying. Kristen had flown all around the domestic U.S., had flown to Hawaii. She's flown over to Europe. Why would she have any fear of turbulence? And so I simply turned to her and say, it's all right, sweetheart. What's the worst that can happen? (laughs) (laughs) To which she replies, we could die. To which I reply, oh, that's not the worst that could happen. The worst that could happen is we go down in some fiery wreck. We're the only two survivors. We're maimed, trying to give each other medical treatment, feeding ourselves off airplane food for months while no one can find us. I think the Lord knew that my sarcasm was not comforting Kristen. And if, if he just left it up to me, well, the marriage would be over before it began. So he sent an angel It was the lady sitting next to Kristen who overheard our conversation, who simply began to say, honey, are you you afraid of turbulence? These planes are built to go through turbulence. This woman was privy to the structural integrity and design of airplanes. And so she began to tell us how airplanes are designed, how wings are supposed to fly. Sorry, to flex, how engines are prepared for turbulence, how captains prepare to go through turbulence. And she talked to us about the structural integrity, the strength of the vessel that we were in. Then the bumps began, and then the bumps ended, and we were okay. Now, not to make things small, but like that was real turbulence that we went through. I mean, like that kind of turbulence where like babies are flying in the air and drinks are flying off people's trays. It was real turbulence. But for both of us to know the structural integrity of the vessel that we were in was so helpful in navigating, in remaining calm, in being steadfast in and through the turbulence. See, I think James is talking about trials as turbulence of life. Like everything's kind of smoothly sailing along and then trials bring these bumps. And James is saying, okay, Christian, I want you to know how to think about trials, that these young Christians have now professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have hidden themselves in Christ. Christ is the vessel. God is the vessel that they have put their life in, they've deposited their life in. It's like these baptisms that just happened. I profess Christ and I'm depositing my life in Christ, in God. And then trials come and it's like, whoa, is this thing secure? Seems a bit shaky. Are we gonna be okay? And I think James is going to point out to us the structural integrity and strength of who God is in the midst of our trials. So grab your Bibles, grab your journals. We're going to go to James chapter 1, verse 12. If you need one of these journals, they're out in the lobby. If you already lost your journal, it might be in the lost and found or grab another one. But James chapter 1, verse 12 
He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James opens up by saying, blessed is this person, this man or this woman. Now, I would circle the word blessed because anytime the Bible talks about the word blessed and you can be the recipient of God's blessing, I'm really interested in what follows. It's not so much like prosperity gospel. It's just in God's word, he says, I have, I have a blessing for people. And what's the, what is the blessing here? Well, it's the crown of life. This is actually the culmination of everything he's been talking about. Is blessed is the one who remains steadfast. That's how they receive the crown of life. I want to give the crown of life. What he's been talking about is for those who go through trials, not trying to escape them or abort them, but goes through them, there is a formational effect on their life. And so Christian, I want you to consider, he says, use your brain, turn your brain on when trials come and think about the joy that's on the other side of trials. So that through your endurance, a formational effect would happen that would actually produce more joy and a more complete, perfect, mature faith. He describes it here as the crown of life. So Christian, when trials come, we're going to endure them. There is a reward going through trials. And I want to say, yes, that's what I want. Do you want to be blessed by God? In the midst of trials, know this. If you would endure it and go through it with God, there is a blessing of joy, maturity, a complete and perfect faith that grows and grows and grows into its fullness of life, life everlasting. So what can come in and circumvent, can sabotage my endurance? Well, he shows this warning of what can sabotage that is temptations come in. Is that in the middle of trials that we're going through so much hardship and pain that we try to escape the trial instead of enduring it, we try to escape it, and temptations come in and lure us away from our endurance, our trust in God. And so turn the page in your journals. You go over here to James 13. says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So in the middle of trial, you're going to be tempted. Now, temptation is not sin. Know that. Being tempted is not sin. Jesus was tempted. Do you remember that? Jesus was tempted and tried in the wilderness. Being tempted is not sin. Temptation is a solicitation, is an invitation to sin. And what is sin? Sin is simply this. It's the lack of faith. Sin is always the lack of trusting who God is, trusting God's plans, trusting his purposes, trusting his ways. Temptation is trying to get you out from trusting and having faith in the vessel of God and putting that trust or faith in something else. We'll see this unpacked here in a second. And so in the midst of trials, be weary, be cautious. You are in a place that can be tempted. And look how he describes this kind of five-fold step of our temptation. He says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You can circle all those words. Is that it's enticing. Then there is this luring. And then there's luring on your own desires. And then those desires, when you give into it, away from God, lacking that trust in God, that gives birth to the sin 
And then sin is where death comes from. This is where like guilt and shame, it's regret. That's what's birthed out of this. Like a, like a child that's birthed. It's birthing death. And that is a drastic difference. That's a result of falling into temptation. That's a drastic difference than the steadfastness. And so maybe I'll just put a slash there and write the word life. That's a contrast to the reward of being steadfast is life. So in the middle of trials, if you're steadfast and allowed to have its full effect, trusting in the Lord, that produces life, more and more life. If we give in to the luring, deceiving desires that lead to sin, it produces death, more and more death. Now, this is language that's actually, I think, borrowed from Genesis. Like, James is always picking up language, primarily from the teachings of Jesus. But he's familiar with his scriptures. And I think he looks back at his first temptation, even in Genesis, and you see this same pattern. If you want to go to Genesis chapter 3 with me, that's fine. I'm just going to read it to you. Genesis 3, this is the first few verses. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. So God had created this beautiful garden, put a man and woman in the garden to be gardeners, to bring forth its resources, to cultivate and bring beauty and life into this place, to name animals, to have ownership here. So they weren't to touch this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest they would die. So here's the tempter comes in. Did God actually say that? He's questioning what what God has said. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. Any, sorry, free, sorry, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Like, this isn't going to kill you. Oh, no, 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 God, God's holding out on you. This isn't going to bring death. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And remember what happened? Sin was birthed and so was death. Death in their own marriage. Like all of a sudden they start blaming each other. Death in relationship with God. They start hiding from God. They're afraid of God. Death in relationship to creation. Birth and and work is frustrated. And then you see the fracturing of all of creation. Disease and, and and disorder comes in. And so, yes, truly it gave birth to death. Death in relationship. Death between us and God. Death between one another. Death within self of guilt and shame. And death in in creation itself. And it was the same pattern of being lured and enticed by one's own desire. What was was the, the tempter even playing on? The desire to what? Be like God. See, in James, there's, there's much commentary on, does James say we're lured by our own desires? Are those, all those evil desires, wrong desires? Or are they good desires trying to be satisfied in other places? I, I lean towards their, their good desires being trying to be satisfied in other places apart from God. And so when you're looking at this Genesis story, and he says, hey, you can be like God. Is that a wrong desire? We voted in first service because it was mixed. 
Do I think it's wrong to desire to be like God? What could Adam and Eve have said to the serpent at that moment? We already are! God made us in his likeness. You didn't read Genesis 1 and 2. See, God says, let us make man and woman, male and female, in our likeness. It's called the imago Dei, the image of God. We're going to create them. So he created them, male and female, in his likeness. They're going to say, what? You don't have anything to offer us. We're already satisfied in that desire being made in his likeness. It's a gift from God. But instead, they're enticed and lured and deceived. That's why James says, don't be deceived. Because that's what all temptations is. It's promises something it cannot really offer. I love this imagery of using a fishing hook, right? This is fishing language. You take a lure and you bait it so that you would deceive the fish. But you're playing on its desire, are you not? The fish desires food. That's a good desire. And so you disguise a lure that the fish would take. And then they would be dragged in, pulled out of the water, and gutted. That's what sin is. That's what James is saying, okay? Listen, this is how serious it is. One way of endurance through trials leads to life, more and more life. And the other is like this deceptive hook that's playing on your own desires that plays against you trusting the vessel you're in God as though he's holding out on you. And what you really want and really need is over here. And that is deceiving. Solomon, who is one of the wisest people who ever lived on the planet, wrote the book of Proverbs. And he's writing to his son about wisdom, to be wise in this world. And one of the things he's trying to teach his son is to be wise against the deception of adultery. Now, if he's writing to his daughter, I think he might just use different you know, examples or you know, reverse the, the, um, the nouns there. But this is what he says in Proverbs chapter 3. He says to his son, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare, a trap. He does not know that it will cost him his life. He's being deceived, lured and enticed on his own desires. I think that's, the Bible is telling us, if we have desires, we have desires to be known, desires to be loved, we have sexual desires, we have desires to be secure, we have desires to be influential, whatever those are, all of those desires are to be satisfied in the person and purposes and ways of God. God gave you those desires. Temptation comes in and says, you can't trust God. In these turbulent times, the real thing you want is over here. The real thing you need is over here. And what James is saying is you, you follow that track and it's Production is a little bit more death, death in a marriage, death in a relationship, death in a family, death in finances, death in your identity, death where all these places are to ultimately birth eternal death, forever death. That's directions. And so he wants to warn his hearers, 
You're in Christ. You're in God. And one of the things you need to know is how strong, how structurally strong God is. The temptation doesn't alleviate the turbulence. God will get you through this. And so he gives us five examples, I think, five examples in our texts of God's structural integrity in the midst of of trials. To be reminded ourselves, okay, I know who God is and he will get me through. Here are five things. One we've already seen from verse 12 is that he rewards steadfastness. He's the God that rewards, like, so if you're in the middle of a trial and you're being tempted and you just want to give in to it, you have to know God will reward me. He says, blessed is the one who goes through this. Steadfastness, endurance, spiritual grit. You got to tell yourself that. He is the rewarder of steadfastness. The second thing James tells us about God's character is he does not tempt anyone. He says there's no evil in God. God can't tempt with evil. We know who the tempter is, the adversary, the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness, the one who Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, I was afraid that your faith became shipwrecked, that the tempter had somehow gotten in there and deceived you, and all the work that we did amongst you would have been in vain. That's who the tempter is. Okay, so God does not tempt. And why is that so important? It's because if he's the source of our temptation, he's not the source of our strength. If we have to resist temptation and fight temptation, we'd be fighting against the very one that we should be running to. And so James wants you to know, God's God's not the one tempting you. He's not the source of your temptation. And so he's the source of your strength. Run to him in your temptations. When you feel like you're being lured and deceived, run to God. Third one, James tells us he's the giver of all gifts. Just look at this. There he is. He says, uh, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He's like a father who gives every good and perfect gift. This is so important to know in the middle of trials and temptations. Because the luring is what? There's better gifts apart from God. Isn't that the luring? That the real good gifts are away from God. That if you, if you live your life according to God's ways and his and his purposes, then you'll miss out on the good and perfect gifts. Isn't that the lie? And what does James say? Every good and perfect gift that satisfies your soul, that satisfies those desires that you have, well, that's from the Father of lights. That's from your heavenly Father. And so there is no good and perfect gift. Even though it looks good over there, that is a lure and a hook And so, you know that God is the source of every good and perfect gift. Here's the the fourth one. He does not change. This is the structural integrity of who God is. In the middle of turbulence, it feels like, where'd God go? You know, did, did he just change his mind about me? Is he no longer loving? Is he no longer present? What about those promises I was hanging on to? James says, he does not change. The scriptures tell us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he promised you that he is with you to the end of the age, he is with you to the end of the age. If he promises you that if you lack wisdom, come to him because he gives generously without reproach, that promise is true yesterday, today, and tomorrow, no matter what the circumstances bring. God doesn't change. He's not like a father or a mother that you have to go 
go into the room and you're going to ask a question to or request something from, you're going, I hope they're in a good mood. I hope they didn't have a bad day. No, God is the same. He does not shift on us. I love that. Here's the last one. That he chose to save us. See it here at the end here? It says, of his own will he brought us forth. It was his desire. He looked on us in our sin, in our mess, and he said, I love them, and I want to save them. I want to save them from death and bring them in life. It's of his own will he brought us forth by the word of the truth. That's the gospel. That's how he got saved, the gospel, the word of truth, that we should be the kind of first fruits. That's salvation of his creatures. It was his desire to save us. If he saved us from death, can he not save us from temptations? Absolutely. So those are the five things I think James points to and says, okay, I know it's a little bumpy in trials, and you kind of want to like go jump out of this thing and go find some relief somewhere, but I want you to know the structural integrity of the one in whom you've deposited your life. He rewards steadfastness. He's not the one tempting you. He's the giver of all the good and perfect gifts you long for. He's not going to change on you. And he's actually the one that saw you first and chose to save you. If you just sit right here and go through the trials, I know it'll be a little bumpy, but you're going to be okay. God is strong enough to carry you through. Now, when we experience temptations, they're, they're real. And there's a desire in my heart that wants to go with them. They look really good. And so what are really practical ways in which we can fight against our temptations? That we might remain steadfast. That we would have spiritual grit. What are, what are some of those things? And these are just, here are six of them I want to give them to you. They're not from today's text. They're, they're throughout the scriptures and they're also just from, from wise counsel. So you might just want to write down, here are six things, observations that I have in my own life that I would share with you to fight against those temptations. The first one is, is this, is that you remember. That you remember what God has said. When, when Jesus was in the middle of his temptation, what did he do to combat it? He spoke back to the devil the words of God. He said, thus it is written. God has said. He goes back to, I'm trusting in the words of God. Remember what God has said about you, about life, what God has said about rewarding the steadfast, the direction of temptation leading to death. Remember what God has said. Here's something I want you to remember in temptation, what God has said. This comes from 1 Corinthians 10. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There are people in this room that need to hear this. I know you've failed time and time again. Maybe you're stuck in a habit that just seems relentless. You have to remember God's word that he said is true. In the middle of that temptation, which seems impossible to pass, there is an exit somewhere. And you can find it. God has provided an exit for you that you would endure. You have to just tell yourself that. I remind myself 
that there is a way out. And I'm looking for it. You remind yourself what, what Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. I'm looking for that exit. I'm looking for your strength, your provision. I don't want to fall into this again. God's word is true and we have to remember what he has said. The second one is this, is that we would recognize. We'd recognize our weaknesses. Everyone in this room is more susceptible to certain content, places, um, things in this world that are more luring to you than they are to me. And there are things that are more luring to me than they are to you. And so we must be able to recognize what our weaknesses are. It was a saint, Isaac of Syria, who just simply said, blessed is the one who knows their weakness. For knowing your weakness is the foundation and the beginning of all things good and beautiful. Why, why does he say that? It's because in the midst of our weakness, we boast in our weaknesses so that what? We can boast in his strength. When we are weak, he is strong. It's in our weaknesses that we find God's sufficiencies. And so do you even know what your weaknesses are? Where are you often tempted and fall into temptation? So that you would avoid those places. That goes to this third one, which is remove. That we would actively remove temptations from our life. Because it's so much easier to remove a temptation than it is to resist one. To remove one is the one saying, okay, I know what I'm weak in. I know what I'm susceptible to. And so I'm looking at my calendar. I'm looking at the places that I go. I'm looking at the things in my life. And I know that if I get there, I'll probably fall apart again. And so I'm going to remove that opportunity to be tempted there. Here's, here's just me being vulnerable with you. In my life, I know that I am most susceptible in unstructured free time. In unstructured free time, I know that I can get myself in a world of trouble. And so going into marriage, I told Kristen, hey, unstructured free time is not a great environment for me to live in. And so when you see my calendar, when you're aware of people like canceling appointments, of I just have days on end without having to be somewhere or do something, you should ask me, what are you going to do with all that time? Or I should reach out to you and say, hey, I, I had an appointment for like the next four hours, and that's just not on my schedule anymore. And I just want you to know that, and now I'm accountable for what I do in my unstructured free time. And I'll tell you, for 15 years, that has served me so well. Why do I do that? It's because of what's the consequences of both. One is life, and one leads to death. I want life in my marriage. I want life in my faith. I want life in my family. And so I'm choosing to remove certain things that I know that in the past I've been susceptible to. Now you might look at me and go, man, you're the weakest person in the room. Which I would say, probably. Yeah, probably. But I'm no fool. I'm not messing around with this stuff. And so I recognize where I'm weak and I'm removing those things that I'm just susceptible to. What is that for you? It's like when you get anxious, when you get insecure, when you get stressed out, where are you scrolling? Where are you shopping? Where are you going? What are the lures in your life? 
And so then you begin to remove them. All right, you can kind of picture out, these are all starting with the letter R, yeah? I was thinking about that. Why did I choose R? I don't know. I think maybe it's like, you're going to temptation. It's like, reverse, I'm out. I don't know. All right, here's the third one. Or the fourth one is, is rest. Is we are most susceptible to falling into temptation when we're exhausted. And what exhausts us more than a trial? Like we're already worn out. And when we're exhausted, we just don't have the strength to endure. And so sometimes what happens is you're on Saturday and you just lose your temper again. You're like, why did I do that? I just yelled at my kids. I was using words I shouldn't be using, whatever it is. You go, why did I do it again? I just fail every time. I failed this temptation. You didn't fail then. You failed two nights ago, three nights ago. When you stayed up super late reading uh, the novels you wanted to read or just binging seasons on Netflix or Hulu or wherever it was, and you didn't go to bed. And you did that for two nights, three nights in a row. And then you were just physically worn down. I'm going to tell you, when you're physically worn down, I just don't have the capacity to resist things that I would normally be able to succeed at. And so it's so important that we get rest. I love how God cares for Elijah after that trial on Mount Carmel. What does he provide Elijah? Is rest. He says, come, come on over here, man. Just, just lay down here. You sleep here. I'm going to bring food to you. So you're going to eat and you're going to sleep and then we're going to walk a little bit. Then you're going to lay down again. You're going to eat and sleep and we'll walk and you're just going to rest so you don't fall into temptations. I love it. I love how kind he is. So that's rest. And then here's the fifth one is relate. The opposite of relating is isolating. So relate, don't isolate. You need to be connected with other people in your temptation. You need to be authentic with other people in your life group. Tell them what you're susceptible to, what your weaknesses are. Allow vulnerability to be part of your life. When you find yourself wanting to isolate more and more and more from people, when you want to privatize everything in your life, when no one knows any of your passwords, because you're restricting anyone from knowing you, that is breeding ground. To falling into sin. I know that, which is why I have no passwords in my house that my kids don't even know. You know why? You know why my kids know my password on my phone? Do you know why we link up all of our accounts? It's because that's accountability, man. If your kids can pop into your content, guess what you're not looking at? Guess where you're not going? Why do I do that? You're like, man, tough. you're so weak. Yeah, you better believe it. But I ain't no fool. And I want life. I want more and more life and joy and God's blessing. And so I, I just say, just relate to someone. Let someone else know what's going on. Tell your life group, maybe for the very first time, where you're at, what you're susceptible to. Relate, don't isolate. And here's this last one is, is just Resist is do everything you possibly can, fight tooth and nail with everything you've got to resist because you know the consequences are too great. And I'm so tired of making these bad decisions that just lead to regrets and, and I don't want that. And I'm so thankful for Christ who says, hey, I know I'm dealing with weak people. I'm a weak person. I'm dealing with weak people who are going to fall into temptation. That's why there's grace. If you've fallen into this already, you just immediately today say, Lord, forgive me, forgive me. And I'm coming back to you and he's going to forgive you and wash you clean, removing guilt and shame from all of these things. 
But with everything, resist. It tells us, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's direct resistance and there's indirect resistance. Direct resistance is you're directly opposing something. Indirect is what Martin Luther talks about. He says, okay, to resist this temptation, I'm going to indirectly look at Christ over here. Look at my faith over here. Get involved with God in his service or whatever over here. And God's going to produce in me a freedom from falling into this temptation. And so with everything you have, resist. So when you're, as you see yourself being lured and enticed by your own desires, just hit the reverse. And remember, these are practical ways that we remain steadfast. And why do we care about remaining steadfast in trials? Is blessed is the man and woman who remain steadfast in their trials. For theirs is the crown of life. Now, I can't do this on my own. You can't do this on your own. We need the strength of the Lord to give us the endurance and perseverance. So I'm going to have my friend Tom come back up and we're going to end the service this way by just singing out our need for the Lord in the midst of our trials. To be able to recognize, as James has articulated, this is the structural integrity of who your God is, the vessel that you've put your life in. He's the one that rewards steadfastness. He is the one that he's not tempting us. He's the one that gives us all good and perfect gifts. He's the one that chose us. And so we trust him. And so would you just stand with me? Father, we as a people come to you in the midst of our own turbulent trials, being reminded of who you are. And Father, I just pray for my friends in this room that they would remain steadfast. They'd have spiritual grit in them. They would allow this trial to have the full formational effect on their life that it produces joy, maturity, completion, and the perfect faith that we would receive the crown of life. And so, Father, I just pray that you just hear confessions coming up to you right now of, of where we have fallen into temptations. And, and then we'll just receive grace coming down on us, just grace and forgiveness falling on us. And, Lord, we would just cry out as, as one community how much we need you.